Well, I just want to add my welcome to that which Fred gave at the start. It's so good to have you guys with us today. Uh, and for those who are joining us online, watching from home, it's great to have you with us too. Uh, we are continuing today our series on the road with Jesus in the book of Luke. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 10. And so if you've got a Bible, I would encourage you to open it up and read along. And in this series, we've been, we've been walking through this New Testament book of Luke, looking at the life of Jesus, observing him as he encounters different people, as he brings hope to people who are in despair, as he brings healing to those who are in need of healing, as he proclaims freedom to captives. We've seen him feed miraculously from just a couple of loaves and fish, 5,000 people. We've, we've seen him cleanse lepers. We've even seen him still storms and raise the dead. It's been an incredible journey, and we're going to continue today to see what Jesus has to say as he encounters different people. And we're going to read particularly today about a, an encounter Jesus has with a Jewish teacher of the law, an expert in the law. So he's referred to in the passage as a lawyer. Um, he's not like a lawyer in the way you might think of it uh, as someone in a courtroom, but he, he's an expert in the Jewish law. Uh, and so that's who Jesus encounters today. Uh, and so we're going to read together from chapter 10, verse 25 through to 37, uh, and then we'll tuck in and see what we have to learn from it. So if you've got your Bible, why don't you open and read along with me? And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. It's interesting, isn't it? This man came to test Jesus. As I'm the expert in the law, Jesus, I'm going to put you to the test to see if you know your stuff. And he asks him a really significant question, doesn't he? I don't know if you noticed as we read that just now together, but the question he asks Jesus to test him is he says, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Surely that's, that's the biggest, the most significant question any of us could ever ask and seek an answer to, isn't it? This man asks Jesus to answer the question, what should I do? He was hoping that Jesus would respond with something controversial, I think. See, the religious elite at this point were trying to get Jesus to say things that would incriminate him. They, were, they wanted him to incriminate himself with his words, to stir people up. And so this man was, was really hoping that Jesus would give some more material to them that would discredit Jesus, that they could use against him. Jesus brilliantly turns it straight round on him. I love it. Like Jesus doesn't even give an answer. He just turns it around and says to the man, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus instantly turns it around and the guy is probably a bit flummoxed. Right? He wasn't expecting that. He thinks, I'm going to try and trip Jesus up and then Jesus turns it around and is like, like you tell me. Like, what do you think? And the, the man knows the law, though. And he answers really very well. So he, he says this. He says, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. As the man answered, he quoted two Old Testament scriptures. One, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your uh, strength, sorry, and with all your mind. That's from Deuteronomy 6. It's the first part of Deuteronomy 6. And it was an incredibly well-known passage. In fact, Jewish leaders, people who were devoted to the law, this man probably included wore on their foreheads a small box that would be strapped on that had a scroll inside. And that scroll had these very verses from Deuteronomy 6 written on it. And it was the content of a prayer that they would pray every morning and every night. The Shema. This man would have known these words incredibly well and what they meant to the Jewish people. And so he responded with this. And then the second part, love your neighbor as yourself, uh, is from Leviticus chapter 19. Again, it's part of God's word to his people that the Jews prized highly. And the reason these two sayings, these two verses were held on and recited, and the reason the man says this is what you must do, is they act as a kind of summary of the entire law of God. In fact, we read elsewhere in the New Testament that, that if you could obey these two things perfectly, then you would in so doing keep the whole law of God. The Ten Commandments can be split into two parts. The first four commands are all about God and how we respond to God. And so this command to love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength means to fulfill to obey the first four commands. And then the next six are all about how we engage with one another and how we care for and treat and interact with one another. And therefore this command to love the neighbor as yourself, if you could perfectly obey that, it would mean perfectly obeying the rest of God's law. And so if you could do these two things, then you would perfectly live out God's law given to humanity. You would be perfect. You would be sinless. You would inherit eternal life. That's what the man was going for. He had the answer to the question. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because Jesus doesn't say, no, you're wrong. That's not how you inherit eternal life. I mean, did you notice that? Because if you've been around church a while, you have probably heard people saying, you can't earn your salvation. It's a gift from God. But it's interesting because this man starts with a question. How do you inherit internal life? And Jesus says, well, you tell me. And the man responds with this summary of the law of God and says, well, you, you would do it by keeping God's law perfectly. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus turns it around to him and he says, yes, if, <laughs> if you could perfectly fulfill the law of God, you'll live. Do this and you'll live. But there's a catch. None of us can. None of us has. None of us will. 
this man hadn't. None of us loves God perfectly above all else. None of us loves our neighbours. What does it mean to love your neighbour as yourself? It means essentially that everything that you want for yourself, every good thing that you would want for yourself, with just as much passion as you want it for yourself, you want it for your neighbour too. Okay? So every happiness, every comfort, every provision, every single thing that you desire for yourself with just as much desire and just as much fervency as you want it for yourself, you also want that for your neighbour. Is that true of you completely? I know it's not for me. And in that moment, as Jesus said, you've answered right. If you do that, then you'll live. That man, that expert in the law, would have instantly gone through, ah, (laughs) then I'm not going to live. Wouldn't he, if he was honest? Because like you might be doing now, you would think he's now processing the occasions where he had failed to love others perfectly processing the occasions where he'd acted out of selfish motive instead of preferring his neighbour. Thinking of times where he'd pursued his own glory more than God's glory, or when he'd loved himself and lived to please himself more than loving God and living to please him. Times when he wanted more for himself than he wanted for his neighbour. Perhaps times even when he wanted for himself at the expense of his neighbour. Maybe you know times where you've selfishly wanted something, knowing that it will cost someone else. But you conveniently push that to one side because it serves you and meets your needs. That's not loving your neighbour as you love yourself. We fall short. And this man in this moment would have known that he fell short. And so this exchange reveals to us why God's law was given. See, God's law was given to us in the first place to to show us our need of a (laughs) saviour, to show us that we fall short, to show us that we can't save ourselves, that we can't get close to God's perfect standard in our own strength, that we need a saviour. We need one who will fulfil it on our behalf. And then there are only two responses possible in that moment. See, the first is that you could humbly acknowledge your failure. You could humbly acknowledge your sin and seek forgiveness. Or you could do what this man in his pride attempts to do because the exchange doesn't end there. Jesus having said, do it perfectly and you'll live, the man can't leave it. We read this from verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It's interesting. Desiring to justify 
himself. See, this man realizes he's in trouble. He knows he's broken the law. He knows that if that's the standard, then he's guilty. But he wants to justify himself. He refuses to believe that he can't earn salvation for himself, that he's not good enough. And instead of realizing at this point that he's in over his head and he needs to humbly ask for forgiveness, the guy keeps going still tries to justify himself. And the way he goes about doing it is saying, well, if I can lower the bar, (laughs) like if I can make the standard attainable, like more reachable, then, then maybe, maybe I can fulfill the law and earn God's favor on my own merit. He doesn't want to be justified by Jesus. He wants to justify himself because he's proud. This requirement to love God and to love neighbor as self is such a high bar that the man realizes if he stands any chance, he needs to limit its scope. He needs to bring it down and restrict it in some way to make it feel more manageable. He thinks if I can get the requirements narrow enough and low enough, then perhaps, perhaps I can just get over that bar and inherit eternal life for myself. And so when he asks, who is my neighbor? What he's really asking and trying to search out is, where doesn't this apply to me? Like, who do I get to not love that way? Like, who are the people that I have to, and who do I not have to love in that way? Effectively, he's asking, what can I get away with and still meet the standard? What can I get away with and still be considered righteous? It's interesting how often we can approach things this way, isn't it? If we're honest, the high bar, we realize it's too high, so we try and find ways of bringing it down. It's interesting, there's a a story told about an American comedian who, who died quite some years ago, a guy called W.C. Fields, who was well-known for living a very wild life, consumed far too much alcohol. It was a life filled with addiction and vices and drunkenness, and a life filled with womanizing too. He was certainly not known as a religious man, but a story is told that as his death approached, a friend of his went to visit him one day, And as they came into the room that he was in, they found him reading a Bible. And that his friend was understandably quite taken aback at seeing W.C. Fields with a Bible on his lap. And so they asked him, like, what what on earth are you doing with that? Like, what are you reading that for? And he looked back at them. And just much like this lawyer, he responded to them in this way. He said, I'm looking for loopholes. W.C. Fields knew that if God's law was to be upheld, if that was the standard, if, if perfect obedience to God's law was what was required, he knew that he fell short. And so he was looking through the Bible to try and find a way of lowering the bar. I'm looking for loopholes. I'm trying to work out how it doesn't apply to me, how I can get away with it. 
And that's exactly what this man was doing here with Jesus. Asking, maybe the command to love neighbor just extends to my people, the Jews. Maybe it divides along ethnic lines. Maybe there's a kind of racial bounding to who I am expected to love in the law of God. Maybe we wouldn't admit it, but maybe some of us have been tempted to view things in that way. Perhaps he's thinking, well, maybe it just applies to those who are deserving or righteous. Or maybe it's just other people who are also living a good life. I can just love them and everyone else I can not. But that's not how God works. The bar doesn't get lowered. The standard doesn't change. And instead, Jesus replies with a parable, a story with meaning that many of us will be familiar with. We're going to work through it now. Jesus replied to this man with this story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, no one in Jesus' original audience would have been shocked at the way that story began. The stretch of road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notorious. There were caves along it that made it an easy place for robbers to hide. It was a dangerous and vulnerable place to be on your own. This man probably should have known better, but no one would have been surprised. In fact, the moment Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, the crowd would have anticipated the rest. There may have even been a sharp intake of breath, like, why is he doing that? That bit's not the surprise. What happens next is interesting. We read from verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. Priests would travel that road, not alone. <laughs> They'd be accompanied, but they would travel that road to the temple to perform duties and then return priest was going down that road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side so likewise a levite also someone who served in the temple to facilitate the worship of god a levite and when he came to the place and saw him he passed by on the other side so we're going to take these first two together because they represent a similar thing they were both leaders in the temple they were both important people in the jewish community they were both much like the lawyer who Jesus was speaking to, who had asked him the question. There were people who would have known God's commands. In fact, that morning, both of these men would have recited the Shema. Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. They would have recited those words in prayer that very morning before meeting this man on the road. And when they got home again that night, having left him for dead, they would again recite those same words in prayer. This act of indifference for their fellow man, their failure to love their neighbour, was sandwiched between declarations of love for God. That's not right, is it? If you, if you hear that and you kind of go, meh, 
then you, maybe you haven't understood the point. Like these guys professed love for God, devotion towards God, relationship with him, obedience to him. And in the morning and in the night, they declared it with their mouths. And yet in the middle, they left this man bloodied and dying on the road and did nothing to help him. There's a dissonance here. There's a disconnect that is supposed to make us feel uncomfortable, that is supposed to make us feel a sense of this should not be. That's like, how could they do that? How could they love God and treat that man in that way? It's supposed to make us feel uncomfortable. So how does Jesus resolve that tension? What comes next? Well, many of his first listeners Having got this far in the story, it was a familiar format for a story, they knew the hero was coming. And many of them would have perhaps expected now another Jewish person to be named as the hero. But probably not a member of the religious elite. Maybe a devout Jew, just not one of the Pharisees or a priest or Levite. That would have been popular, actually. See, not everyone liked the priests and the teachers of the law. Not everyone liked those people. So to have a lay person show them up, so they declare love for God, but they leave this man at the side of the road, and then just an ordinary Jew comes along and shows the love of God, that would have been a crowd pleaser for Jesus to preach. They would have liked it. Someone that most of them could identify with means they get to read themselves into the story as the hero. But that isn't what Jesus says. He continues from verse 33, but a Samaritan. I'm just going to pause there. A Samaritan? Jesus' first listeners would have been outraged that Jesus now brings a Samaritan into frame. They were hated by those from Judea. Like it's hard for us to kind of understand the depth of animosity that was there. I guess perhaps the, the conflict that's currently happening in the Gaza Strip in Palestine might, might give us some kind of idea of the level of tension and animosity at play. Back in chapter 9, just a chapter and a bit ago, two of Jesus' closest followers, and then if you remember, they asked if they could call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans. They, they weren't just doing that because they were offended on Jesus' behalf. There was a certain amount of relish for them in the prospect of seeing their enemies suffer. It was deep prejudice. This was a 400-year-old rivalry that centred around racial purity. The Jews had maintained this racially pure line when they were exiled in Babylon. But the Samaritans lost theirs by intermarrying with the Assyrians who invaded. And that caused this divide where the Jews said, you've turned your backs on God. You're no longer part of God's people. You're out. 
They rejected them. They treated them as outcasts. And this rift grew. This hatred was so deep that actually the Jews of Jesus' day even had a prayer that concluded with this phrase. Concluded as they prayed to God, and do not remember the Cuthites, or in there you read Samaritans, at the resurrection. They hated them so wholly that they actually can regularly pray to God, God, do not save them. Do not remember them at the resurrection. Do not allow them an inheritance in your kingdom. So Samaritan, being brought into frame as they expect the hero to emerge, would not go down well at all. But this hated Samaritan does this, we read. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. It sounds strange to us. You've just got to think of it as like first century first aid. Okay, Common, commonly used for medicinal purposes, oil and wine. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. This hated Samaritan brings healing to the wounded man on the road. He meets his needs and pays incredibly generously out of his own resources for the man's treatment and rehabilitation. This love across racial boundaries, this love in spite of 400 years of animosity between two groups of people, this love even when it wouldn't be reciprocated, this love not to gain something in return, this selfless, generous love for an enemy is the kind of love God requires of his people. This is how Jesus answers the question. This is how Jesus illustrates to the man what he must do. And then Jesus asks him, verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This parable that Jesus told exposed the man's hypocrisy for what it was. There was no getting around it. The Samaritan was the one who lived out God's commands. The, the priest and the Levite may have professed love for God in the morning and the evening, but in between, they undermined that profession with hatred for their fellow man. Where the lawyer wanted to lower the bar, Jesus doesn't give him any wiggle room at all. Who's your neighbor? Jesus uses this Samaritan to say, everyone, <laughs> everyone, even your enemy, even the guy you hate, even the one you've been praying, God, don't save them, don't remember them at the resurrection, even them, you are to love as you love yourself. Everything good that you want for yourself, you are to desire for them too. They're your neighbor. Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, explains it like this. He says, we instinctively tend to limit for whom we will exert ourselves. We do it for people like us and for people whom we like. But Jesus will have none of that. By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more 
forceful way to say that anyone in need, anyone at all in need is your neighbor. Regardless of race, political class and religion, they are your neighbor. Not everyone is your brother and sister in the faith, but everyone is your neighbor and you must love your neighbor. The priest and the Levite, in spite of their declarations of love for God, simply reveal by their actions that it's a sham. It's hollow words. The lack of love for their neighbor simply revealed a lack of love for God. Just let that sink in for a minute. How does your love of your neighbors reveal your love or lack thereof for God? Just think about it for a minute. How much to our shame can we be like this in the church at times? We profess our love for God in songs and in prayer as we gather on a Sunday. Maybe we even have clothing or artwork hung on the walls in our homes that declares it to be so. We have books on our bookshelves, maybe even quotes that we put up on social media that declare it to be so. We love God. But unless we live it out in loving others, then it's just hollow words. Because sincere love for God and love for others always go hand in hand. If we truly love God, then that will find its way out in love for others, in love for those created in his image, in our fellow man. Not as a means of earning salvation, okay, because we're not going to do it perfectly, (laughs) but as an evidence of salvation. If we know and have experienced the love of God in Christ, then we will respond in love for others. Jesus' instruction to the Samaritan at the end of this passage to go and do likewise, to go and treat your enemies like the Samaritan just treated his. It wasn't just for the religious of the day. It's for us too now. And it's an acid test for us because if we profess love for God and yet we harbor hatred towards other people or even indifference to those in need, then we simply reveal that we're liars and hypocrites. That's what Jesus is teaching here. We need to grasp it. And like the lawyer in the story, we have a choice. We have a choice about how we respond. And so I want to encourage you today, don't be like the lawyer in the story. Don't get on the defensive. Rather than looking for loopholes and seeking to justify ourselves, we should allow this to cause us to cast ourselves again on the mercy of God, to come back to him and say, Lord, we know that we've fallen short. We don't do this perfectly. I love myself more than I love my neighbors. Lord, would you forgive me? to find forgiveness and to ask strength to go again, to love as we've been loved by him. 
for the glory of God and the good of those around us. It's, it's easy to put up all kinds of objections. If we allow ourselves to just, just let's drop our kind of prideful self-righteousness for a minute. Let's like drop, because what we do when we read this is we tend to look at the lawmaker uh, and that, that man and we go, ah, that was stupid of him. Ah, we'd never be like that. We like to distance ourselves. But if we're honest, we can't. We can't distance ourselves. We're all just as guilty as him. It's easy to put up all kinds of objections. We find ourselves saying things like this to justify ourselves. These are our equivalents of, who is my neighbor? We say things like, but they don't deserve it. They're lazy. They should help themselves first. Or, but you don't know what they did to me. I could never, if you knew what they did to me, I could never. Or maybe more subtly, we excuse ourselves. I just don't have the time to help. Like, I wish I could, but I just don't have the time. I'm too busy. Or we find creative ways of saying it, but essentially what we're saying often is it would be costly. It would inconvenience me. It would mean putting their needs at least on a par with, if not higher than mine, and I'm simply not prepared to do that. But Jesus is dealing with this man is precisely the same as us. And Jesus turns the spotlight back on him. And right now he turns the light on us. Turns the spotlight on this man and allows him to see his failure. He responds in pride. He turns the spotlight on us. And we realize we're just like him. How will we respond? I want to encourage you, please don't respond like that man. Don't remain proud and stubborn. Instead, admit your need of forgiveness. Recognize your need of a savior. And as you do, see how he deals so generously with you. See how he deals so kindly with you as you ask for forgiveness. See, we're not just supposed to look at the Pharisee, Levite, and Samaritan in this story as people who we might potentially be. It's important that we understand that in very many ways, we're like the man who is helpless, broken, dying, in need of rescue on the road. Unless someone came to rescue him with neighborly love, with selfless inconveniencing themselves, love. Unless someone came to him and was prepared to do for him what they would want someone to do for them. Unless someone came to him and inconvenienced themselves for his sake and saved him, then he would be dead. And in the same way, the Bible teaches us that we are helpless dead in our sins, powerless to save ourselves, in need of rescue. And Jesus is truly the good Samaritan. We read this in Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, 
This applies to all of us. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. That just means not loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and strength, right? Satisfying ourselves, it means not loving your neighbor as yourself. We've all fallen short. We read this, like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. We were enemies of God. But, we read from verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Like the Samaritan in the story, Christ came to us while we were still his enemies. He met us while we were dead in our sins and he, he met the cost in full. As the Samaritan met the cost in full for this man's recovery and rehabilitation that he might not die but might have life, Christ met in full the cost for our complete healing and restoration that we might not perish but have eternal life by grace, not through works. A gift of God, not from yourselves. The bar doesn't get lowered. The bar doesn't get lowered. The standard doesn't change. But Christ, in his love, fulfills it on our behalf. We read again in Romans 5, verse 8 to 10, this, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We read from verse 10, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? While we were enemies. We grasp this. We understand this perspective. If we allow that truth to sink into our hearts and do us good, then actually it humbles us. It prevents us from being judgmental and it leads us to show mercy to others. It actually enables us to love our neighbors as ourselves. It disarms our arguments and excuses. I don't know if you noticed that. It just kind of takes the legs right out from underneath all the reasons we might give why we can't love someone, why we wouldn't love our enemy, why that difficult person we're justified in keeping them at arm's length. All of these objections we put up the way Jesus has engaged with us and come towards us in our sin while we we're still his enemies, remove our arguments, it utterly disarms them. Notice this. Maybe our excuses, they don't deserve it. I don't know if you noticed in those verses we just read from Ephesians 2 and Romans chapter 5, neither did we. <laughs> yeah? They don't deserve it. Guess what? Neither did you. You did nothing to deserve God's mercy his kindness, but in his love, while we were still enemies, Christ came for you, that you might find forgiveness. Maybe you are more likely to use the line, but they got themselves in this mess. Hey, guess what? So did you, <laughs> yeah? 
We have rebelled against him. We have sinned and fallen short. We've gone our own way instead of living in obedience to him. Maybe it will be costly for me. I just am not prepared to... It will be costly. I, you know, I, I can't help them. I can't. It costs Jesus everything to go to the cross for you. See, when we understand what he did for us, when we allow it to permeate, to penetrate our hearts, it changes everything. If we routinely overlook or pass by those in distress, physical, economic, social, emotional, mental, if we can routinely overlook them, pass them by, ignore their plight, then I want to propose that that just says we don't truly know God's grace in our lives. We've not allowed the gospel to take root and bear fruit in our hearts. If we see people suffering and we remain indifferent, if we harbour hatred towards others, if we put our own comfort and wants above the needs of others, it says more about the state of our hearts than we'd care to admit. Because how we treat others is a dead giveaway for how we respond to God. And those who truly know the goodness and grace of God will respond in love for him, and love for others. Not perfectly, but they will. They'll do it. So I want to invite you to respond to that today. To not be like the lawyer, but to come and find mercy. To come and know again forgiveness. And to allow the riches of Christ's love for you to cause you to respond in love for him and love for others, to live this week for the glory of God and the good of others. Yeah? Let's stand together, shall we? I want to invite you to come again to find mercy. And I want to challenge you as we head out into this week, as Jesus said to this lawyer, to go and do likewise to love as you've been loved, to show mercy. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to sing one final song. Oh Lord, Jesus, we thank you that you haven't treated us as our sins deserve. Lord, I thank you so much that all the, the, the objections we put up to excuse ourselves from loving others, to excuse ourselves from serving others, Lord, I thank you that you didn't view us in that way, but instead, while we were still your enemies, while we were still in rebellion against you, while we still lived to please ourselves instead of in obedience to you, you came and you lived. You perfect.
fulfilled the requirements of the law. You, in every single way, you perfectly loved the Lord your God and you loved your neighbor as yourself in the most profound way imaginable, going to death, even death on a cross on our behalf, taking on yourself the punishment that was so rightly headed in our direction. Lord, you took it on yourself that we might be forgiven, that we might go free. Lord, you're so good. You've been so good to us. Jesus, I pray right now that you'd help us to realize again the, the, how incredible your love is towards us. And Lord, as that dawns on us again, as your kindness and your mercy just speak to our hearts afresh, the way you've treated us, the way you've drawn us close, adopted us, called us your sons, drawn us into your family instead of rejecting us. Lord, would you allow that to sink in and to do us good now? That the result would be an overflow of love. The result would be love in response to you, but also love for those around us that we would see our fellow man as those created in your image men and women and children to be loved regardless of, of social standing or race or anything else that we would put up as a barrier. Lord, I pray that you would help us to love in spite of, to love through, to love everyone created in your image, irrespective of any of those barriers. Lord, we know that's what you've called us to. And we know it's beyond our ability to do in our own strength. And so we ask, God, would you fill us again with your spirit as we head into this week? Help us this week to love as we've been loved by you. Fill us again that we would live this week for your glory and for the good of those around us. Amen.